0: Welcome to Because People Count, the Accountancy Europe podcast. This podcast tackles the hottest topics for the European accountancy profession. Get your need to know update from Brussels. Welcome to our last episode of Season 2. Building on our ongoing series on sustainable corporate governance, we finally get to hear from the EU institutions, more specifically from the European Parliament. We're bringing you an exclusive interview between Accountancy Europe CEO Olivier Boutelis-Taft and European Parliament Vice President Heidi Hautala. Both are strong advocates for embedding sustainability in all levels of the economy. The discussion touches on where this could go, especially in relation to the European Commission's upcoming proposal. This episode is longer than usual because we think it gives the opportunity to fully explore the nuances of this topic. Best of all, you can watch this interview as well. The video recording is available on our website. We'll have a link in our show notes. Thanks for staying with us, and we'll be back in the autumn after a little break with even more from the world of accountancy Europe. Enough from me. Let's hear the discussion.
1: Heidi, it's a great pleasure to have you here with us today. We're going to be talking uh, about corporate governance and sustainability. But maybe you would like to set the scene a little bit for us today and tell us about how you see the sustainability challenge that humankind is facing. Thank you. It's also for
2: me a great pleasure and honor to be here. I'm sure that we can create some inspiration in our talk. So I would think that, and this is very much my inspiration for the last years, that I realized that it's inevitable that we need corporate world and the private sector to be Mm -hmm. a part of the transformation so that we do not continue to exceed what we could now call the planetary boundaries. And that we also respect the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights, which by the way had its uh, 10th anniversary on the 16th of June. For me, a great celebration, because I realized 10 years ago, when I read about this decision by the UN Human Rights Council, that indeed it was something completely groundbreaking, that while the governments would, and states would still have the responsibility to protect human rights, companies would have the duty to respect them. And I think what we are seeing now in and around the EU, but also in other parts of the world, is that Now, there's a great call for corporate accountability, transparency and sort of a co-creation of meeting these global challenges that we have. So it has to be an interplay between the states, the companies and the civil society and uh, all sort of different stakeholders that corporations have around them.
1: It's very interesting you outline this anniversary indeed, because I don't know if you feel the same. But recently, it happens to me very often that listening to, let's say, the OECD, the IMF, I mean, what a lot of people used to look like as the temple of orthodoxy, I would say, and you hear them talk and you're like, is this an NGO talking or is this really the OECD? So it mm-hmm. seems that the mood has changed, no?
2: I feel the same. I okay. often have to pinch myself because I realize that how deep this transformation that we understand we need to have is and uh, there's a lot of genuine will to find the best tools and the best ways of be a part of that transformation also by corporations and indeed OECD has by the way always been a front runner of integrating different policy areas. So I would say that I'm not even so surprised about that. But what was a big surprise for me was that the European Commission became so vigorously insistent on implementation of what we call the European Green Deal, which means that we have to extend this idea of sustainability to basically to all policy areas. And that's a challenge for administrations because they usually work in silos. And of course, we see it still very much. Even in the EU and in the Commission, but I think they are learning to look at things in an integrated way, and that's necessary. Otherwise, we will be just sort of wasting resources and mental energy and not really find the right solutions.
1: Indeed. And I think this approach has been developing and growing in business as well. I think it was a year and a half ago now that the even in the United States of America under the previous administration. The Business Roundtable actually made a very strong statement on the importance of sustainability, stakeholders, inclusion, and corporate governance. So, coming to corporate governance, I mean, what in your view is the role that corporate governance should play into the necessary transformation of basically the way we live on the planet and therefore the way we do business? Corporate governance
2: uh, sometimes is seen as something very holy and protected. It's an area where where sometimes it's felt that the states are maybe interfering even too much in business. But I think it's also correct and this has to be done together with corporations because obviously companies understand best how in practice promote certain societal mm-hmm. demands. But I do see that we are in a kind of a breaking moment uh, in the sense that there is this idea of resetting the economy, uh, there's sustainable finance. And if this is not reflected in corporate governance, I think many companies will be a bit lost. I, of course, see that the front runners are there already. They have very good practices. and They, <laughs> they are completely in line with what, for instance, the UN guiding principles show, but they don't have a level playing field. And that's what mm-hmm. I hear very, very often these days is that the uh, companies are calling for a level playing field. And this is to protect the frontrunners who have understood that they can and they shall transform their own activities and structures so that they can really in an integrated way and at the highest corporate level address these challenges. But there's also resistance. I was a bit uh, taken by Taken back, I would say, by a letter that the Nordic Employers' Organization's chiefs sent to the Financial Times a couple of months ago, where they they kind of warned that the European Commission is planning some sort of NGO takeover of the corporate world. I would say that this is a little bit too colorful for me, yeah. uh, because what we can see is that what we are trying to talk about is that it's all very important for companies and their leadership to understand what's going on in the society how they affect the society, how the society affects them. This is what we call the boring double materiality. And there seems to be resistance to this. And some corporations, even I think unduly, believe that their critics are their enemies. They should be considered their best friends, because they get a lot of essential information from these dialogues and consultations. So... I don't think we are in the middle of any kind of uh, NGO takeover of the corporate world. But the civil society has strong views because they feel that we cannot achieve our global challenges and solutions without the corporate
1: world. It's very interesting what you're saying, actually, because two years ago now, uh, Accounts Europe published a kind of reflection paper on corporate governance. And we were saying exactly the same thing, as you said, on uh, the level playing field. Uh, there are a lot of admirable front-runners in yes. business, really, and in all honesty, I tend to think that business has done much on this issue, maybe even more uh, than governments at times, but front-runners can't be expected to continue the race in front if the rest of the gang is not following. Yes. So, indeed, I think the level playing field issue is very important. That's an, At in Europe, actually, we've been working on the old sustainability issue for more than 25 years. So it's not really a new issue mm. uh, for us. But the other thing that strikes me in what you just said is that it seems that we continue effectively seeing this as almost a political or ideological issue. I mean, you're an MEP, so you belong to a political party. Yeah. From my viewpoint, this is a fact. I mean, science is giving us a lot of very worrying warnings on the state of a planet, on the state of climate, on the state of water, on the state of whatever indicator. So I don't think this is a political discussion. I think this is really something that we all collectively have to look into, no? I think the younger generations automatically realize that this
2: is the case and they are quite rightly worried about their future and the future mm. of their children. And uh, I think some of the most striking things that we see now happening is that, for instance, I give you this example that is now very noticed, that a Dutch court accepted yes. the challenge by an environmental group called Defense and 17,000 people who participated in a class action against Royal Dutch Shell. And it's been said that it was the first time ever, the 26th of May 2021, that a court accepted that such a multinational company had responsibility about their value chain, all the way to the Nigerian oil drilling fields, where they had caused damage to people and livelihoods, and the environment, of course. So I like to see this as a rising example. There's a bit of like a new air in customary law, you know, Mm -hmm. this kind of random court judgments, which we see now, I would say, almost every month, Courts are saying that policymakers and companies must do more to protect the planet and people. So, of course, this is a message to the lawmakers that, you know, we shouldn't be reliant on on random court rulings. We should be sort of putting in place the framework that people are invited to be a part of the solutions, also the corporations. So I see this as a very revolutionary moment.
1: Indeed. And, you know, if you can talk a little bit about what's happening in the European Parliament Mm -hmm. on that. You've been the author uh, uh, as shadow reporter of uh, an initiative report on uh, corporate governance and social responsibility. But can you give us some insight of how your colleague MEPs from other parties uh, look at that? And what is your message, basically, in the parliament?
2: Yeah, we're talking about two or three parliamentary (laughs) uh, reports, which we call own initiative. It Mm -hmm. means that we were not asked by anybody to to do this. The parliament decided to do it. First was a colleague called Delara Burkhardt, a young German Mm -hmm. social democrat, who drafted a report on uh, how to tackle deforestation in global value chains. And the second was one on on sustainable corporate governance by a French uh, renew member from the Macron party, uh, Pascal Durand. And then we had the one on accountability and corporate due diligence by a Dutch social democrat called Lara Walters. Mm. And we are a, a group of MEPs across the party lines, which have been sitting together a lot, tens and tens and tens of hours together. Also talking to the stakeholders, industries, corporations, civil society, on how the European Union now could set the scene for global standards by being a frontrunner as a lawmaker on corporate accountability. It's been a great experience and it continues because it was also a learning process. Because we had to understand how our plans on uh, including stakeholders in company processes, how the due diligence process should be designed so that it makes sense for the companies in action. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't just say that, okay, this is how we want it. But through a lot of exchanges, a certain model arose. And now we have some concerns that the European Commission is not really as ambitious as we would like to see it to be. I'll give you one example. The parliament was very clear after a lot of discussions that uh, we need to have the whole value chain Mm -hmm. in the scope of uh, what is required of the companies. That if you look at cocoa production or textile production, it's often at the very beginning of the process on the ground, you know, in the plantation or on the factory floor or even in the cotton field, that you have the biggest issues relating to environment and human rights. And now some would like to see this sort of cut. And I see that many companies are worried because uh, if they are accountable for the value chain, they have to understand all the way from the beginning to the end, you know. Mm-hmm. So I hope that the European Commission is not compromising on this, because it would, in a way, dilute the whole exercise into very little of value.
1: So are you saying that this is almost a non-partisan issue in the Parliament? Uh, it's, mean, it's, is
2: not, it's not entirely non-partisan, because we see that, at least at the beginning of the debates, the, the traditionally sort of Mm pro-corporate, pro-market parties have been, let's say, they have questions about whether companies really need to be directed in this way. But the more companies participate in the discussion, the more the messages go through those more or less, let's say, center-right wing parties, who consider themselves to be the friends of business, and now we understand that. What does it mean to be a friend of business, that we can, uh, we can sort of create together a framework where we also manage to save this planet and its people? So it's becoming less of a partisan issue, but it has been a partisan issue yeah. to some extent, yes.
1: Which is consistent with the evolution of the uh, discourse that, you know, we refer to in the OECD or the IMF Mm -hmm. or the World Bank. I mean, if you want to be friend to your friends, you've got to be friend to business and friends to the planet as well, I suppose, today. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So coming down to corporate governance, I mean, so far, this has very much been seen as an issue that is very much influenced by culture different legal frameworks, and therefore an issue that is to be probably left in the hands of self-regulation at national level, mm-hmm. to be dealt with by voluntary codes and so on and so forth. You know the debate, you had this debate in the Parliament. So, How do you see the case for change actually in that space? What makes you think that it is now time to change? Beside, of course, the level playing field argument that you mentioned, which Mm -hmm. I think is very important indeed. The
2: the European Commission has been criticized a lot by certain elements in the corporate world that it is not true that companies on average would still be focused on short-termism, short-term profits. So they got a lot of criticism on this. But then, for instance, if you look at how little corporate accountability and sustainability figure in remuneration of companies, then you realize that it really, for, for many companies, still it is a kind of a second class issue yeah. to dealt with officials at, you know, definitely not at the corporate the board level. So I think there should be some uh, incentives for companies to incorporate sustainability in the remuneration systems. And of course, it would be great if companies would not need to be invited by law to set up certain structures like a committee that is looking into the sustainability aspects and very integrated to the board. But I'm afraid this needs some action. And this is perhaps the tough part which companies often do not support. At the same time, as I said, clearly see that the sustainability is not a cross-cutting issue at the highest level for many corporations mm-hmm. yet.
1: It's interesting you talk about short-term, because that's something you know always puzzled me in a way. Because if you look at some companies that do very long-term investments and that do plan on very long-term, just take the example of oil company. I mean, in oil and gas, you have to plan your investment on a very long-term in a way. And I don't think they are really part of the most sustainable companies, aren't they? That's a nice paradox
2: to mention that indeed. Yeah. But then we, at the same time, we may realize at the moment that these companies may face stranded investments at a uh-huh. certain point. And then the question, of course, arises that how much should the companies themselves be aware of such, let's say, long-term risks that will affect them? Maybe let's let's call them non-financial risks, which will them in a very dire situation also financially, but as an accountancy profession, I
1: believe that this is uh, very much at the heart of of what you're discussing. Indeed, and before going there, I think there is another paradox with the short term, which is that we're again always talking about short-termism and etc. The reality is that if I remember the report of the IPCC from 2018, I Mm -hmm. think it was, they were basically talking about an emergency that we need to deal with in the next 10 years. Is that the short term or the uh, long term? A, I mean. yeah,
2: yeah, thanks. That's a nice challenge. I like that. Because it's true that what we are now gathering from the best world-class research and virtually undisputed, more and more undisputed, yeah. is that these next 10 years, it sounds almost magical, but let's say until 2030, we still have time to put in place the mechanisms. And now we have to undertake the transformation now, because if we haven't done that by around 2030, then we will risk to face a very serious collapse of our, let's say, the protective systems of our planet. I often study what Professor Johan Rockström, the director of the Potsdam Climate Change Research Institute, says that we are facing a situation where a tipping point of about one of the nine protective systems on our planet, if there will be a tipping point, there could be a very dangerous domino effect, you know, if the summer ice in the Arctic is now becoming virtually non-existent. And then that might again happen an impact on uh, climate systems elsewhere. So I have to confess that we need this type of (laughs) short-termism to to address this long-term. Everything is quite near now. Let's undertake this transformation. And I'm very curious about your profession, how you see it, how accountancy can be accompanying this transformation Mm. and even be at the leading edge.
1: Well, I think I mentioned that sustainability has been a priority for Accounts Europe for a number of years now. And we have been working heavily on, of course, environmental accounting, on uh, sustainability reporting, on integrated reporting, on assurance on sustainability matters. Because I think that is really important. Just to give you an example, actually, the uh, chief executive of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development used to always say that accountants will save the world. Well, I'm not sure that's possible, but at least I think what he meant to say is very interesting because it really means that we have to measure what we do to be able to manage our businesses. And that is a very important element of corporate governance as well. Uh, I think with accounting, reporting and audit, accountants are providing one of the key enablers of corporate governance. So that's something that we've been very heavily involved uh, in for a number of years. And uh, we're working right now on the CSRD that the Commission has just uh, published. I think a piece of legislation that we've been very supportive of. And I hope that it has a smooth ride in the Parliament because we need this piece of legislation quite quickly. So I don't know what your take on that, but do you think how do you see uh, it going in the Parliament? uh, We certainly
2: welcome the Commission's uh, initiative Mm -hmm. and I was delighted to see that we don't anymore talk about non-financial reporting, we talk about sustainability reporting. I mentioned uh, this uh, small delight of mine uh, to the Commission officials and they said oh, that was a very small confession to make. (laughs) But it needs to be beefed up a bit, I think and uh, one thing is that it needs to be somehow synchronized with the forthcoming proposal on the corporate due diligence. Right. As we see in that piece of legislation, that's what the companies need to pay attention to, what are the risks for each of them and what they need to report on. And then one jumps to the CSRD. But do you think that there is a moment now, a momentum for the EU to... Uh, to help to put in place a global reporting standard? This is a big debate, I understand, among yourselves. And uh, there are those who say that this is necessary. I think most most people would say that we need a global standard for global businesses, global markets. But the risk is that there could be several which are not very well integrated. But what what is the stake?
1: I think that is indeed quite an interesting debate and a very topical one right now. With, on the one hand, the Commission announcing and asking EFRAG, the uh, European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, to start work on a sustainability standard. And on the other hand, the IFRS Foundation, that is also setting up a uh, sustainability uh, reporting board. And I think it's the same thing as what you mentioned on the evolution of the discussion in the Parliament. I think it is time we all work together This is just too serious an issue to Mm -hmm. have different, competing, overlapping initiatives. But I think we need to be clear also on what it is that we're trying to do. And I think the IFRS Foundation is trying to provide the reporting that is of interest to investors for global financial markets. I think the EU is taking things a step forward, I would say looking at how to address more stakeholders than only investors, looking at this double materiality that you mentioned earlier, and also looking at having a tool ensuring the transparency on the way that European, purely European regulation is being implemented and enforced. So personally, I see the two initiatives are complementary. What we will need to be very careful about is actually to avoid overlap or inconsistency into fundamental standards. And that's why at Accountancy Europe, we encourage the EU and international standard setters to coordinate and work together. But I think we also very clearly recognize that there are differences in scope and ambition. And and I think that's part of the equation in a way.
2: Do you see that the understanding of corporate sustainability reporting would be arising also on other continents, like is there anything going on in Asia? Because it seems to me that until now we talk mainly about European and uh, maybe US-based companies, but maybe I'm not quite on track
1: Well, it's quite interesting when you travel, although you don't travel anymore these days, but when you're in front of your screen at home and talk to people on other continents, I'm always struck by the admiration uh, for the political courage uh, that the EU and the European Commission and Parliament are showing. So I think this is being picked up. You've got jurisdictions like Japan that are also very aware of the challenge, I think and also very interested and supportive of the work that is taking place. So this is happening. I mean, there is a lot of debate on China, of course, as always, but we see the commitments that they start making on the emissions that they produce while producing the goods that we consume, usually, something that is a little bit forgotten as well. But we know that when usually they decide to change, they do change pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So let, let's see how this all unfolds. But indeed, I think there is now uh, raising global awareness uh, across the continent. We as a profession are a global profession. We have global standards on auditing. We have global standards on ethics. We are applying global financial standards. And I think we look forward to developing standards and supporting the development of relevant standards at global and EU level with the different proposals that they may have. So, yeah, I think that is a very important development that is taking place now.
2: Yeah, I share your your observation that the EU is being observed and that the European actors, because I truly believe that we may be at the verge of what we call another Brussels moment. <laughs> that what is being created now here, of course, not in a vacuum, not isolated from the world, could become a pathway to global standards. And certainly the UN guiding principles on business and human rights were supposed to be a global practice, a global standard. But what worries me is that we also would need to extend all this to developing countries. And we see that one of the big drivers of of what's going on now is that we as consumers are very wary of uh, being complicit in deforestation or child labor. For me, it's not enough that we kind of cleanse our own supply chains as consumers and Mm -hmm. countries. But I'm becoming more and more alerted to the fact that we need to sort of involve development cooperation with all the tools that we have in that area and the EU and its member states and, of course, other countries as well. So for me, it would be an important debate now that how can we make sure that all this reaches the ground, the actual work, actual lives of people who work in very dire conditions and in spoiled environments, partly because of uh, corporations, but we need to sort of see that these countries – in Africa and uh, Latin America, Mm -hmm. Asia, that they also simply start to develop a better governance, which is able to provide education, health, Mm -hmm. a a cleaner (laughs) environment. And that's why I'm very happy to see that in the EU Commission, several commissioners are very involved with this work, at least four or five of them, very
1: actively. Mm -hmm. And I hope that they will not dilute the ambition. And the dialogue with the new U.S. administration seems to be back on track. So all that is good news in a way. But if we focus back on corporate governance, Mm. uh, can I ask you the 1 million euro question? Because we were expecting a proposal, and I see we've got a question actually coming from Mm. the audience on that. But I think... We were expecting a proposal from the European Commission, from mm-hmm. Commissioner Reinders, and it seems that it's been postponed and that the new commissioner is also coming into a play. Do you have any insight on that? Can you tell us more on what's happening? I think there's two things. Let's say that the, the good news, and there
2: will be the bad news as well, but the good okay. news is that this is, of course, a m- sort of a multi-sectoral, cross-sectoral exercise, which means that more sort of sectors need to be engaged from trade to environment, from commerce to uh, justice and so on. So it's good that what comes out of the European Commission is kind of taking into account all these different uh, aspects properly. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have what we call a regulatory scrutiny board that seems to have had a negative opinion on what they were offered. But the bad news is that uh, the longer we take in this, the likelihood that some of the more, let's say, resistant conventional uh, business circles interfere in the game and say that this is not what we need, this is not what we want. And I'm afraid this is also happening now. So I think Accountancy Europe, lots of different actors progressive companies like the chocolate industry, the big chocolate producers have said that they do not want to delay on this legislation because they have a history of dozens and dozens of voluntary standards and that doesn't help them in their efforts to eradicate child mm-hmm. labor and deforestation. So I think it's time to be a bit vocal now if we want to see a progressive legislation which really sort of uh, encompasses the whole value chain of the company. And for those who are worried, I think we need to f- emphasize over and over again that there is a principle of proportionality. that right. It's not every little detail that will take you to court. Mm. We always repeat that the companies need to focus on the most salient risks mm. and study them carefully and see how they can mitigate. And this is very much in cooperation with the different stakeholders.
1: You're actually anticipating on a question from the audience because I think when we're looking at the uh, proposals on corporate governance, what is usually the source of concern in business is what will effectively be compulsory, will be mandated, and how detailed this is going to be. I mean, we at of Europe are fairly clear on that. I mean, we think it is principles and outcomes that need to be made clear and need to be embedded in legislation but legislation is probably not the tool to go as you very rightly said yourself into all the details mm-hmm. but i think this is really the source of worry understandably see from business uh, so what is your recommendation to the commission on the scope of what needs to be mandated
2: well it's a scope that the value chain is it has to be kept sort of whole because otherwise you lose the transparency and, mm-hmm. and you don't see what is in it then um, It's necessary, I think, to understand that the size of a company is not what defines what risks there are for the environment Mm. and human rights. So I think what the European Parliament, after long debate, proposed is that all listed companies and all big companies and smaller companies in risky areas. Well, I know we are entering into a difficult debate because we wanted the European Commission to define the risky areas, but I can tell you from interactions with so many different People that it's possible, for instance, to see that agribusiness and mining are very risky businesses. Yeah. So my favorite idea is that there should be an obligation for companies to include sustainability in the remuneration criteria. Because yeah. that would be a real trigger of a kind of a you know, top-down process in the company. But I don't think it's necessary to define what kind of bodies companies should establish for being able to address the sustainability uh, challenges. Because (laughs) if it's a smart company, it knows itself. And if it doesn't do that, then things just may go horribly wrong. So these are the things that I'd like to... It's interesting,
1: your comment on size, because it seems that you've been reading our website and the different papers that we've been publishing, saying exactly the same thing, (laughs) that it is all about risk and proportionality Mm. rather than just size. Indeed, so that's an interesting point. Uh, I think some leading companies are are starting to integrate sustainability factors in remuneration. So there will be an important role, I think, for the remuneration committee on the board. But I think there is an equally important role here on the quality of information that is being used in the interest of those who are being remunerated on these bases and the company. I think it's very important that we have good information, reliable information. What
2: What would guarantee such a good quality information and how should it be verified?
1: Well, companies obviously will have to change their processes on the production of information and sustainability information. I think we recently had an event on the role of audit committees in this mm-hmm. respect yes. that you kindly concluded and attended. And I think audit committees have a very important role I to I play here. I completely
2: agree. And talking to board professionals, I hear some of them say that training is important. Yeah and the presence of qualified people in boards. And then we can see that this little revolution, well, it's a big revolution that happened in ExxonMobil the other week. Indeed. That um, two or three board members were elected who are particularly qualified in addressing climate change and, let's say, redirecting and reorienting such a company like ExxonMobil towards more accountability and sustainability. So... I was delighted to hear from uh, some board professionals that they say that people involved in this type of uh, exercises, they need to be able to speak sustainability. Perhaps we can say that it's a language, but it's also a kind of a way of seeing how different aspects of sustainability, human rights, governance, uh, environment, how they are related to each other. So away from silos, more towards integrated
1: views. Yeah, I think I agree with you, but it's interesting to see how in Western science and Western philosophy we have started segmenting everything, you know, making small compartments where we put everything, while everything is connected in reality. So this is largely artificial, I think, in a way. And what I believe will be important moving forward on board is to have sustainability integrated into the boardroom at large. Not necessarily having one person standing there for a cause. Uh, I think that is really not what it's all about. But it's interesting also to see how the market is responding. Because you may remember a few months ago seeing a survey that uh, got a lot of attention. I think it was New York University uh, doing it and saying that there is a terrible climate incompetence in boards in the U.S., and it is in the U.S. and one of its largest oil companies that you see the change. Yes. So change is happening. And a lot of this change is driven by the market, actually. So I think that also brings us back to the question of what needs to be mandatory and what needs to be left to the market. And that's why we believe that it is very important that we are clear on the principles and the outcomes but not going to you know, very detailed prescriptive requirements.
2: I definitely agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that most important thing now in what we are expecting from the EU is that uh, this due diligence process is described mm-hmm. well. And then it should be left to the companies to arrange you know, how they want to achieve that. But the steps of, of the due diligence process, which means right. that they have to have uh, the capacity, the competence to look into the value chain. And here, as lawmakers, we can make sure that
1: it's not just sort of put into pieces, you know, this value chain. So that brings us back to another controversial question on director's duties. Mm-hmm. And do you think, you know, director's duties should be increased? Uh, I'm sure you've heard the argument that if director's liability is increased, nobody will want to be a director anymore and companies will be left without any directors. What is your take on that? Where is the balance between mm. duties and liabilities?
2: When we talk about individual liabilities, I think it's not so clear how that could be arranged. but the board as a whole should make sure that they are able to prove that they have followed the due diligence process and that they have taken the steps seriously and that that when they faced issues, Mm -hmm. I mean, there there are issues in every supply chain. There's something going wrong. And that they then have uh, undertaken to mitigate those risks. And then they should be protected from, you know, we can call it due diligence defense, in fact, but I always go back to the UN guiding principles. The third pillar, access to justice. Actually, one of the most important aims of the objectives of all this is that uh, when there are wrongdoings towards workers or environment, human rights violations, for factory fires, things like that, killings of human rights defenders. So there needs to be liability. And this is very tough, but... I think that otherwise this whole exercise is in a way meaningless, but I would say that the board would need to be accountable as a whole because it is a collective, it's a kind of a collective
1: organ anyway. So, but what is your view on that? Uh, I think I tend to agree with you. It is a collective responsibility, Mm. and it is by keeping this collective responsibility that you will actually have the board behave in an integrated way with all the different directors bringing Mm. their own perspective, specialty, competencies. So I think that is important. And finding the tipping point with liability has always been a very difficult exercise. Uh, nobody wants to see their liability increased. And one of the problems is that across Europe, we've got quite a diverse landscape in terms of liability regimes, which doesn't really match with globalization in a way, but that's where we are for plenty of historical reasons. I think it's interesting also to see that another controversy is also the uh, competitiveness of EU companies and common mm-hmm. comment that I'm sure you've heard a number of times, that increasing the duties and the liability of EU companies might put them at a disadvantage in international competition. So as the parliament had discussions, I'm sure, on that, but how do you see you know, a way of breaching a fair balance here?
2: I think the most important answer to that is that everyone wants to see this future set of legislation to be applied to all companies operating in the EU internal market. Mm -hmm. Now I hear that perhaps the Commission wants to somehow dilute this. And I'm a bit worried because I think this would be indeed a way to protect European companies and their competitiveness. Because if the same rules would apply to all operating in this, let's say we are still the largest internal market in the world. That may may not last because of the demographic developments and uh, you know China rising ever more, but it has a huge attraction. That's what I hear from companies. That that's why the EU can be relatively confident that it can apply the same rules on non-European companies operating in Europe. So I think this is the most important thing. Yeah. Because there have been concerns that it would only be applied on European companies, but that would be very unfortunate, and I don't see this happening.
1: We had this debate in a number of other fields, I mean including on reporting, also mm-hmm. on tax transparency, on you know quite a number of debates yep. and if I hear you properly, what you're saying is that these rules should be applied to anyone willing to do business in the EU willing to sell to. EU clients, basically.
2: Yes. And there lies the momentum, because then there will be an immediate spillover effect uh, Mm -hmm. beyond the EU. And that's why you mentioned that in Japan, there is an awareness of what the EU is doing. And I hear that US law firms are studying the intentions. I hope not in order to stop them. (laughs) But so this is a real opportunity now and It's exciting to be a part of all this at this moment when there is this growing realization that the way our societies have developed is not going to be Mm -hmm. lasting for very long if we want to save the planet and its people.
1: So again, this is a short-term duty, <laughs> right? It. You really challenged me on
2: that quite successfully, I well, must I, say. I, I
1: think we do have to rethink <laughs> what we mean by short-term and long-term yeah. and future generations. I mean, we've been Talking about future generations for 40 years now, yes. uh, I'm afraid it's a matter for our generation, not any future one today. But looking at stakeholders' engagement, which is another big element, I think there has been quite some worries in business. But if you're trying to include too many stakeholders, companies company is going to be impossible to manage. Mm-hmm. So what is your view on the board responsibility towards stakeholders and who do you think is best place to know who a company's stakeholders are
2: i think the company and right. but i don't make it easier by saying that also the stakeholders have a certain stance in addressing the company and that they should be listened to but really it depends on the individual companies how sensitive they are and i have some experience i was the chair of an oversight body of uh, Mm -hmm. Neste, the biggest producer of biodiesel Mm -hmm. in the world today, which developed from a fossil fuel company towards almost like, not completely, but mostly biofuels. And it was a hard lesson for them to understand that when environmentalists and indigenous peoples were criticizing them in their operations in Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. that they were not enemies. They were actually friends. And then they started to invite them to talks, and they learn more and more where the problem is. So it really should be seen as an asset, but I don't think anybody can dictate who is, is my stakeholder. But the, I think there are certain basic things like it's normal these days that companies also involve their employees and the labor unions to be a part of the process. I think it would be very backward if that didn't happen, but there are other stakeholders
1: outside the company as well. Yeah, we still have quite significant cultural differences, I think, yes. uh, even in Europe on the role of employees in yeah. companies. But by the way, yeah. the Mixon Mobile case is interesting because it shows yeah. that
2: there are now activist investors. Yep. Sort of stakeholders jump into the role of activists and put pressure on the company. So uh, Thomas L. Friedman called this democratic capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> So we see all sorts of different ways in which stakeholders can get engaged.
1: Indeed. You also have activist investors who look in the opposite direction at yes. times. We've seen that uh, in a number of recent cases as well. But I'm very interested to hear you confirm actually that the business of identifying stakeholders is the company's business. They are indeed best placed. But I think it's also important that we strike a good balance between shareholders and stakeholders, which is also probably something that the parliament has been discussing, I'm sure. Yeah, but then this whole world of shareholders
2: is also changing. It's
1: also changing. (laughs) And
2: I'm really looking forward to the Commission's new revised uh, sustainable finance strategy. By the way... How I learned about the connection between sustainable finance and due diligence was that in the first sustainable finance action plan Mm -hmm. that the European Commission published in 2018, it was mentioned that it's necessary to have a due diligence uh, mechanism in companies because otherwise the investors would not know what they are investing in. So there's a a very organic connection between all these reporting, obviously, as well. So we are looking at a A very interesting set of different mechanisms that need to sort of work smoothly together, as you said at one point.
1: Well, thank you very much, Heidi. I think we could continue talking for another couple of hours, probably. I think these are very interesting times indeed where we do see a lot of change. Do you have any final comments, any points that we haven't addressed that you'd like to make or any concluding comments that you'd like to share with the audience today? Well, let me
2: say that Accountancy Europe As you said, uh, you've been working on sustainability in various forms for 25 years, that there's quite an interesting combination and landscape of different people and organizations and companies that now are working together to the best possible European Mm -hmm. Union standards on due diligence, corporate reporting, sustainable finance. And I think this is a real asset, this cooperation between and the need to make sure that We learn together and that the outcome then is
1: the most practicable framework for companies and the society. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think we ourselves, Accountancy Europe, are a very diverse body. And if we represent about one million professional accountants across Europe, Mm. these accountants work in very, very different fields, with a lot of them working in accountancy firms, a majority uh, firms of all sizes. But interestingly, something that a lot of people don't necessarily notice, a lot of the members of our members are working in business, in companies, or also in the public sector, boards of auditors and ministries of finance. So this is just, I think, one more piece of evidence, but it's all about dialogue and it's all about cooperation. It's been a great pleasure to have you today, Heidi. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you
2: for having me here.
0: Thanks for listening to Because People Count, the Accountancy Europe podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcasting apps. Get in touch. We are at AccountancyEU on Twitter, and you can contact me at andrea at accountancyeurope.eu. This podcast is presented and edited by Andrea Campbell, with support from Yulia Keys. Our music is Fearless First by Kevin MacLeod under a Creative Commons license. See you next time, because people count.